Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Welcome to the Ezra Klein Show, a podcast on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest this week is someone who a lot of you have been asking for for a long time, Brian Stevenson, who is the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative. I don't know how many people deserve to be called heroes, but I think that he is one of those on the list. The Equal Justice Initiative is a remarkable legal services group. It's based in Montgomery, Alabama, and it works, among others, with folks on, on death row. He and his staff have overturned the wrongful convictions of 115 people on death row. That was not normal work when they began doing it. It was not safe work when they began doing it. He is the author of the remarkable, remarkable book, Just Mercy, which I recommend you read if you have not read it. He is building and working on the Museum of Racial Justice. He recently won before the Supreme Court a ruling that life without parole is unconstitutional for minors under 17, which was a a tremendous change in law. He is a fascinating but morally just very powerful grounded person we talked about a a large range of stuff but but i think most powerfully the role that shame plays in the legal system and the role that it maybe could and should play in american life and whether that is counter to our traditions and what it would mean if we took a, a different attitude towards that there is a lot to think about in this episode there is a lot to struggle with in this episode and it was uh, an honor to get to do it as always, a couple quick requests. Uh, one is to check out our new Facebook group for The Weeds, which is my other podcast along with Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff. You should be listening to that. But we also have what's turned out to be a very, very, very fun Facebook group where there's a lot of great discussion, a lot of great articles getting posted and worked through. Um, I'm learning a lot from it and participating quite a bit. You can find that on Facebook by typing in The Weeds. Please send me requests for the upcoming Ask Me Anything episode, uh, whatever you would like me to answer. Uh, send to EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, that is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. All that said, here is Brian Stevenson. Brian Stevenson, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be with you. I wanted to begin by asking you about something that you say often, and every time I have heard it, I have thought, that's interesting, but I'm not sure I quite understand it, which is that the opposite of poverty is not wealth. The opposite of poverty is justice. What do you mean by that? 
You know, America is an incredibly wealthy country, but we've always had enormous stratification. Uh, the wealth of the colonies was built on uh, a genocide of removing Native Americans from lands that they occupied. We kept their names, but we made them leave. Um, there were millions of Native people on this continent before white settlers came, and we killed them. Uh, through famine and war and disease, and we didn't really acknowledge the injustice of that, the unfairness of that, because we were persuaded that our economic security and our political development required the acquisition of these lands. And it began this way of thinking about wealth that is disconnected uh, from the inequality, the injustice, the abuse, the oppression that is sometimes used to create that wealth. And that uh, that habit was reinforced uh, through slavery and we created great wealth in new territories in the south, in the colonies by relying on enslaved people and the labor and the uh, benefits that that created without any real thinking about how that wealth was sustained by abuse and oppression and inequality and injustice. And even after slavery, I don't think we ever really dealt with the unfairness of exploiting people for decades, uh, centuries, and then doing nothing to help make them whole. And it wasn't just uh, formerly enslaved people. It was poor whites that came to this country as immigrants who were also often abused in working places and mines. Uh, and this idea has emerged in America that wealth is created by people with great talent and great ability and we value wealth, we respect wealth, we admire wealth and we disdain the poor. Uh, we blame the poor. We fault the poor for not achieving more economic security and we have, a, I think, a really unevolved uh, attitude about about how to address poverty. When I look at our history of using power and abuse to sustain and create structural poverty and institutionalize it without any shame, it makes me question whether we truly understand what poverty represents. There are a lot of countries across the world uh, that are poor. But in most of the developing world, 90% of the people, 80% of the people are poor. And when you look at your neighbors and you look at the people on the other side of town, you don't see people who have great wealth and you don't internalize what it means to be poor because everybody's poor. But in this country, poor people uh, live in proximity with great wealth and what they see on TV and what they see in politics and what they see in power are, are, are largely people who have enough wealth and support. And so I think it's actually really hard to be poor in a country like ours where you're, you're often pressured to internalize what it means to be poor. You begin to blame yourself. And so for me, it's important to redefine what it is we are dealing with when we deal with poverty. And that definition begins in recognizing that the opposite of poverty isn't wealth. The opposite of poverty is justice. If we actually had been just to those communities that we removed from the land, if we had been just to the formerly enslaved, if we'd been just to immigrants who came and gave great wealth, Irish, Italian, uh, South American, Mexican, we would actually be in a very different place when it comes to dealing with structural poverty. And so for me, if we're going to end poverty, we're going to have to elevate our commitment to justice. We're going to actually have to talk about the institutions and the histories that have created this sustained poverty. And that's what I mean when I say the opposite of poverty 
is justice. It, it means that we've got to actually think about how our indifference uh, to unjust, unfair, exploitative, oppressive treatment of the poor, of low-income workers, of immigrants has created a nation that is so economically stratified. And we're not going to get to ending that stratification, ending that poverty until we increase our commitment to doing what's just. I recognize and I apologize for the size of this next question. What is justice? Justice is a constant struggle. I I wish I could define something precise uh, that I could give you an equilibrium that was the answer uh, to what justice is. But after doing what I've done for as long as I've done it, I, I am persuaded that justice is a constant struggle. It is something that can be achieved when people of goodwill work hard uh, to be fair, uh, when they think about uh, what's appropriate, what's reasonable, uh, what's just. And it's like being in an ocean uh, in a rowboat. You you have to keep working at it if you're going to make progress. Otherwise, you start letting other forces carry you in directions that are going to end up in places that are unjust, unfair. It's what happens when people come together and aspire to achieve something that is equal and fair and humane and uplifts everyone. You know, Dr. King said <laughs> uh, justice is what love looks like in public. And, and there is something to this idea that it's a commitment to embracing the people around you, protecting the people around you, protecting those who are disfavored or excluded uh, or who are unpopular. And it's a commitment to, uh, to be governed by values and principles and norms that we all share. Uh, but even with those norms and values, it doesn't really work unless there's, a, there's constant struggle. But I would actually push you on this a little bit because something that I think we're facing in, in this country, certainly we, we faced as a species for many years, is do we share those norms and values? I mean, just in, in the issues that, that, that you work on and that, that we're going to talk a lot about, the question of whether the death penalty is just is deeply contested. The question of what descendants of slave owners owe the communities they enslaved, if anything, is deeply contested. And so there is something in this country, probably in, in human life, but certainly in this country, about leaving the question of justice up to intuition that doesn't appear to, to quite work. And, and something I've often seen in your work is a, a desire to force a process of deciding on what justice is. But, but embedded in that, I think, is there's a lot of disagreement about that. And there's particularly disagreement from those for whom I think your definition of justice would require the assumption of shame and possibly the recognition that reparations or some other kind of recompense is necessary. Well, I think you're absolutely right that the norms and the values we express are not the norms and values that we implement, that we pursue. But if if we just take the Constitution of the United States as a framework, as a document, and we enforced it uh, fairly, I actually think we'd be in a very different place. It's just that the the writers of that constitution, the framers of that constitution wrote these words about equality and liberty and justice, but they didn't extend those protections to people who were different, who were of color, who were enslaved. And I don't think we can defend that exclusion today. 
but we haven't acted on achieving those outcomes for those communities. And so I don't generally need to create a whole new set of rules and principles. If we just take these constitutional norms that have shaped uh, at least life in, in America and we were diligent about enforcing them uh, in a way that includes everybody, we'd be in a radically different place. And so we know that we did not provide equal protection. We did not provide just treatment. We did not provide due process. There were no rights uh, for enslaved people, for African Americans. There were no rights that could be enforced for Native people. And that disjunction, I think, represents a kind of prioritization of some interest over others. So you're absolutely right that those who had power were not really committed to uh, fulfilling these norms, uh, these principles for everyone. But that doesn't mean that if we accept those norms and principles, we can't do something to achieve that. And and so, yeah, I think it's a, it's a narrative struggle, really. I mean, y- you can say... Um, you know, you love your brother, uh, but if you steal from him and you abuse him and you injure him and you mistreat him, then you're saying that you love your brother doesn't mean anything. Uh, we can say we believe in equal treatment, just treatment, fair treatment, but if we disfavor people, we abuse people, uh, we enslave people, we terrorize people, we lynch people, it doesn't mean anything. And so what I'm talking about when I talk about a constant struggle, I'm actually talking about the struggle that pushes us to do what we say, you know, to, as, as they say in the civil rights community, walk the walk. And that's the nature of this challenge. And I do think there are narratives we have that we rely on to feel comfortable uh, with the status quo. Uh, I mean, you know, the people who came to this country as settlers they didn't think of themselves as inhumane or barbaric or or killers or mass murderers or anything like that. They just didn't see the native people that they forced off their land as fully human. They said those people were savages and they used that narrative of racial difference to justify their comfort. And watching these communities die by the millions uh, be forcibly removed, we kept their names and their and their titles and their words, but we made them leave and we didn't have any disconnect around that. And then we used that same narrative of racial difference to justify centuries of enslavement. And I actually think that the great evil of American slavery wasn't involuntary servitude and forced labor. The true evil of American slavery was the narrative we created to justify it. Our slave owners wanted to feel moral and just and Christian while they owned other human beings. And so they made up this ideology of white supremacy that cannot be reconciled with our constitution, that cannot be reconciled with a commitment to fair and just treatment of all people. They made it up so they could feel comfortable while enslaving other people. And I really believe that narrative was the true evil and it's the thing that didn't get abolished in 1865. If you read the 13th Amendment, it talks about ending involuntary servitude and forced labor, but it doesn't say anything about the narrative of racial difference, the ideology of white supremacy. And because of that, I've argued that slavery didn't end in 1865. It just evolved. We had decades of terrorism and violence and lynching. And when I look at these photographs of hundreds and thousands of families in the American South gathering at the square and watching in a carnival atmosphere where people are celebrating and joyous while a black man or woman is burned at the stake and then mutilated and brutalized. It's hard to reconcile that image 
with those same families going to church on Sunday and feeling proud of themselves and their community. There is a disconnect. And when people don't struggle to confront that disconnect, to, to assert some value, some principle, some norm that transcends that practice, we create injustice. And we've not done the kind of work that I think we need to do to combat these narratives. The North won the Civil War, but the South won the narrative war. There was no actual accountability. There was no reckoning. There was no acknowledgement that slavery was wrong at some fundamental level. We didn't actually push ourselves to confront that, that atrocity in the way that we should have. And because of that, we replicated it over the ensuing decades. We had convict leasing. We uh, passed laws that continued to burden and uh, ban black people from voting and, and getting education. And we were not uncomfortable doing it. We actually codified these restrictions. We codified a racial hierarchy. It was apartheid. And rather than being ashamed of that or concerned about that or conflicted about that, given our constitution and our rhetoric, we, we were very comfortable because of that narrative. And even during the civil rights era, you know, these amazing people, Dr. King and Rosa Parks and so many others risked their lives to push this nation toward justice and won the passage of the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. But I actually think the South won the narrative war because there was never a requirement that we repent from those signs that said segregation forever, a segregation or war. We didn't actually insist on a turning point. And the absence, the failure uh, of that transition means that even today we're dealing with a narrative of racial difference. When I work in my work, it's, it's, it's aimed at trying to confront the burdens that people of color in this country face, uh, which are heavily organized around uh, a presumption of dangerousness and guilt. And it doesn't matter how educated you are. It doesn't matter how many, how many degrees you have. It doesn't matter how skilled you are. You will go places in this country if you're a person of color and you will be presumed dangerous or guilty. And you're going to have to overcome that presumption. And as I get older, I can tell you that that weight starts to feel heavier. You start to feel overwhelmed by constantly having to navigate people's perceptions of you. And even though I'm a practicing lawyer and I've had a lot of success in some of my work, I still have to overcome that presumption frequently. And I just don't think we're going to be free until we do something about these narratives. And that's why the struggle point is the heart of it for me. Anybody can talk about redemption. Anybody can talk about rehabilitation. Anybody can talk about reconciliation. But we live in the most punitive society on the planet. We've got the highest rate of incarceration in the world. And there's a disconnect there that we're not going to uh, uh, actually make sense of until we begin to deal with uh, what we say and what we do. And that's not just America. That's every country in the world. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Eurovision is here. This year's contest gets underway this week in Malmö, Sweden, but this year's contest comes with a dose of controversy. I'll give you one guess as to what people are mad about. Yes, correct. It's that. Michael! 
Organizers of the Eurovision Song Contest say they are assessing whether Israel's entry breaks the rules on political neutrality. I think it's a shame. I think there is no way that, that Israel should be able to participate in Pro-Palestinian protesters are taking to the Swedish streets. More than a thousand Swedish artists, including Robin, have called for an Israel ban. Some European politicians are joining them. Charlie Harding from Switched On Pop joins us this week on Today Explained to help us figure out if Europe can sing its way out of this situation. I want to talk a bit about the way the South, or you can just say more broadly, whites won that narrative because it's something that you focus on in your work in an interesting way. When I drive into Virginia, I drive on highways named for Confederate leaders. I drive by buildings named for Confederate leaders. And, and something you've spoken about repeatedly that I've found very powerful is the difference between what the United States memorializes in its built environment and what other countries that have had a history of shameful violence and oppression memorialize in their built environment. And I'd love to have you talk a little bit about that and what that difference means for our collective consciousness. Yeah, I, I think that uh, what we do um, in the memorial spaces, what we give importance to, what we value, says a lot about who we are. And we can't disconnect from the landscape that we create uh, with these kinds of memorials and monuments. In less than 15 years, we built a 9-11 memorial because our nation was so shocked and injured and traumatized by those attacks. And I, I think that's appropriate. It just speaks to our collective need to give voice to suffering and abuse. And we've done that in this country. But we've done it in a way that I think is dishonest frequently and is injurious. And the American South is certainly a place where you see that. Our landscape is littered with the iconography of the Confederacy. We are celebrating the architects and defenders of slavery. We're celebrating people, many of whom gained power through violence and retribution, through the violent end of Reconstruction uh, in the 19th century. And I don't think we understand what that means uh, for our commitment to equality and fairness and justice. Uh, if there were Hitler statutes all over Germany, I couldn't go there. I, I just couldn't. I would not be able to make peace with a nation that was still comfortable with the era of German history where Nazis were responsible for the death of millions of, of, of Jewish people in concentration camps. Until we repudiate that, until we reject that, until we symbolize something that says we now want to recover from that and repudiate that forever, you leave questions about who is there and what they mean. And I think Germany has tried to do that. They have built monuments and memorials to symbolize deep despair over the Holocaust. The Holocaust Memorial in Berlin is extraordinary. If you go to Berlin, there are markers and stones uh, all throughout that city. You can barely go 100 feet without seeing one that's been placed at the home of a Jewish family that was abducted. In Rwanda, you are required to hear about the genocide. You can't go to Rwanda and spend a few days without someone talking to you about the damage and the despair and the hurt and the pain created by that, that horror. In the uh, Genocide Museum there, there are actually human skulls. That's how powerfully people want to express their grief. 
In South Africa, you are required to see the consequences of apartheid. There's an apartheid museum. There are places where camps and prisons have been turned into visiting sites where people can reflect soberly on that legacy. Uh, but in this country, we don't talk about slavery. We don't talk about lynching. We haven't really dealt with the pain and anguish. And worse, we've created a counter-narrative that says we have nothing about which we should be ashamed. Our past is romantic and glorious. In my state of Alabama, Jefferson Davis's birthday is a state holiday. Confederate Memorial Day is a state holiday. We don't even have Martin Luther King Day in Alabama. We have Martin Luther King slash Robert E. Lee Day. Our two largest high schools are Robert E. Lee High and Jefferson Davis High. They're both 90-some percent African-American. And if we don't think it matters, then I think we're just kidding ourselves. We do think it matters. That's why we have a 9-11 memorial. What we haven't done is understand what we are saying about who we are. And I do think, yes, it's hard to engage people in this, uh, but I do think we have to increase our shame quotient. And I don't think shame is a bad thing. You know, I work with people in jails and prisons, and most parole boards will make my clients say, I am sorry, before they can get paroled. It's a requirement in many states that you have to show remorse, even if you have a perfect prison record, before they will let you out. And we require that because our sense of comfort, our sense of safety is compromised if we don't think you appreciate the wrongfulness of your criminal act. And I actually think there is something philosophical about that in faith perspectives uh, to get to salvation, at least in the Christian tradition, you have to repent. There is no redemption <laughs> without acknowledgement of sin. And in other traditions, you see that same notion. And we don't think it's bad to repent. We don't think it's disempowering. We actually think it's cleansing. It's necessary. It's ultimately liberating to acknowledge where we were and where we want to go. And we haven't done that collectively. We do it individually, but we haven't done it collectively. And it's why the landscape of the American South is still hostile to people of color. It's still threatening and menacing and injurious to people of color. It's why our silence about lynching and slavery and segregation is so dangerous, so problematic, it creates a kind of smog that we all breathe in. And it's not just African-Americans and people of color. It's all of us because you don't have to have participated in the Holocaust in Germany to be implicated if you can comfortably sit in a Hitler park and enjoy your lunch. Uh, you are implicated if you are silent about the genocide in Rwanda, even if you didn't participate in it. Uh, you are implicated if it doesn't matter to you whether people understand that apartheid was right or wrong. And in that same way, this is an American challenge. It's an American problem. And I don't think it just bears on issues of race and equality and justice. I think it bears on everything. I think we live in a country where it doesn't take much to create distrust and opposition and fear. And we bump into one another. And we bump into one another because we can't trust one another. And we can't trust one another because too many of us have been silent about this history, about this landscape, about this cultural statement that we keep repeating over and over again. And I think we have to stop that silence. We have to begin speaking about these issues. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, after 30 years of really focusing on criminal justice work, we've expanded our work to now deal with this legacy of racial inequality.
I have several million follow-up questions to ask you here. <laughs> I, I want to put a pin in shame because I want us to, to really talk about shame in, in yeah. a couple of minutes. I think it's a very important part of your philosophy and it's a concept that in American life I think we have a lot of trouble with. But I want to spend another moment on on the built environment that, that you're working on. Yeah. When I began preparing for this interview and, and hearing you talk about uh, the way the South looks to you, I thought a lot about it trip I took to Germany a number of years ago. And I was there in part to observe the political convention of the Social Democratic Party. And in Germany, you, you cannot get a more anti-Hitler party than the Social Democrats. They were jailed for their anti-Nazi uh, position. And I remember being there and, and, and being at the convention and realizing something was physiologically very wrong in me. I was very upset. I was very anxious. I was very – my heart was racing. Mm -hmm. And it took me a minute to figure out what was going on. But what was happening was that I was walking through halls hearing German on loudspeakers. And in a way I couldn't express and didn't know just the legacy for me of being Jewish, what that sounded like to me, right? What that yeah. had been in the culture for me was having a very powerful effect on my body. Yeah. And I think that this is the kind of thing that, you know, when I drive on Robert Eatley Highway, I don't think about it that much. But but I'm I'm... I'd like to hear a bit because I think you have thought about it. What does it feel like to be an African-American man going to Robert E. Lee High School mm. or walking by a Jefferson Davis statue? What is the lived experience of that? I think people can conceptualize why maybe it is abstractly unjust. But what role does that have in your daily life? Well, I, I, I appreciate you raising that because I actually think this kind of psychic burden that we all bear when we understand the spaces that we occupy and the histories of those spaces is really powerful and we need to talk about it. Um, and I know lots of people who have had that same reaction to being in German or being in spaces where they hear these powerful, strong and and forceful statements being made. And I uh, appreciate giving voice to that because I think it does open a door into thinking about what that means for people in this country. You know, I grew up in the segregated South. I, I could not go to the public school. And everybody in my family and my community had to create a whole way of coping with segregation that was dehumanizing. My mom was one of these people who would answer any question in the world you asked her, um, even though uh, she didn't go to college and no one in my family had gone to college, she really valued education. And if you asked my mom, mom, what's that star in the sky? What's that planet? She would say, oh, that's the brightest star in the sky. And the only time I could remember my mom not asking, answering my questions is when we would drive past the public school and I would ask my mom what the word public meant. And she didn't want me to understand that it meant that I should be able to go to that school, but instead we're going to this little shack called the colored school. And there is an accumulated burden when you have to keep uh, dealing with these things, uh, when you are excluded and disfavored, uh, when you are presumed dangerous and guilty. There was a uh, – I grew up in the 60s uh, and you know the polio vaccine was being disseminated widely. They wanted to eradicate polio and they wanted all the children to get polio shots and I remember we didn't have a doctor in our county. They made everybody go to a building where they were supposed to get shots. And of course, the white kids went through the front door and got their shots first. And the black kids had to wait outside the back door. And finally, when they got to the black kids, the, the nurses who were administering these shots 
were tired because it had just taken a long time and they'd run out of lollipops to give the kids to help temper the sting of that needle. And by the time they got to the black kids, they were just rough. And my sister was in front of me and they grabbed my sister by the arm and they uh, picked up the needle and they jabbed it into her arm and she started screaming. And my mother was there. My mother was this amazing, kind, loving person. Uh, She was a minister of music. She, for me, was so gentle in so many ways. Uh, But when they grabbed me by the arm, I started screaming for my mother and the nurse was about to put this needle in my arm. And then all of a sudden, I heard all of this glass breaking. And my mother had gotten so angry and frustrated. She'd walked over to a wall. She picked up a tray of beakers and started throwing them against the wall. And she was screaming, it's not right. It's not fair. You made us wait out there. It's not right. And the doctor came in and said, call the police. And I remember the black minister's coming forward and begging the doctor not to call the police. One of them actually fell to his knees and said, please don't call the police. She, we're sorry. She said, we're going to get her out of here. And it was this performance at trying to preserve the medical care that these black children needed in the face of, of a protest about how unjustly and unfairly this process was working. And when you have to act like that, when you have to live like that, when you have to do that over and over and over again, it weighs on you. It injures you. Those signs that said white and colored, they weren't directions. They were assaults. My parents and grandparents were humiliated every day of their lives. And we haven't done enough to recover from that. And in that respect, the emblems of that era, these Confederate flags, these symbols, this pride and this romanticism about that era is deeply vexing. I I, I can't make sense of people who want to talk about the good old days of the 1940s and 50s. They want to romanticize the turn of the century. They think, oh, I would love to be in the mid-19th century. I think it's just uninformed and it's painful because we're not actually appreciating what those eras represent. Uh, And even in this current political climate, When people start talking about make America great again, I really want to know what decade we're talking about. And I think too often we haven't considered uh, just how difficult our history has been. And you grow up feeling marginalized. You know, I – my my grandmother was the daughter of, of slaves, of enslaved people in Caroline County, Virginia. And because her father uh, risked his life to learn to read while he was enslaved – He became quite influential after emancipation because he could read and he taught his daughter to read. And my grandmother was absolutely persuaded that the greatest power you could ever develop was the ability to read. And so she was in my ear all the time telling me the stories that her father told her. And she just did something to, to kind of strengthen my resolve to understand the world I live in. But notwithstanding that and notwithstanding the pride I had in, in, in my family for giving me the opportunities, when I got to Harvard Law School, I didn't want people to know I started my education in a colored school. I didn't want them to know I was the great grandson of enslaved people because at that point, I was worried it might diminish me in an environment like that. I was sitting in classrooms where people's parents and grandparents and great-grandparents had all been attorneys. And it was worrisome to me that I didn't have that pedigree, that I didn't have that lineage and uh, exacerbating it by talking about how, well, I didn't even get to the public school and it just didn't seem smart. And I struggled 
during my first year there. I didn't find purpose there. I couldn't hear anything that made sense to me in terms of why it made sense to even be a lawyer. And I left the law school and I went over to the School of Government. And a couple of months into that year, I was even more miserable because they were teaching us to maximize benefits and minimize costs. But it didn't seem to matter whose benefits got maximized and whose costs got minimized. And I went back to the law school and was trying to rationalize accepting a career as a lawyer that I knew was not going to be fulfilling. I had been taught my whole life that the privilege of education is that you get to make choices with what you do with your life. But all of a sudden, I felt trapped. And I kept worrying and kept worrying. And when I finally uh, took an internship that got me close to people on death row and when I finally began to see that maybe I could make a difference in the lives of condemned people, people like me who had been forced to live in the margins of society, I began to understand my identity in a completely different way. Everything changed for me. I was radicalized by this vision that maybe I could help condemned people get to higher ground. And I also was radicalized by this idea that if I could help them get to higher ground, I could get help myself get to higher ground. And when I went back to Harvard Law School after that experience of meeting death row prisoners, I was radicalized. I needed to know everything about substantive due process and procedural due process. But I also wanted everybody to know I started my education in a colored school. I'm the great-grandson of enslaved people because rather than being diminished by that fact, I realized that it was a source of my power. It was a source of strength. I didn't have the lineage of parents and grandparents who had been doctors and lawyers, but I had coursing through my body the lineage of people who had fought and endured slavery and oppression, who had survived circumstances that were inhumane, who had fled terrorism and lynching but understood that they could not be defined by those acts of violence and could not give up their willingness to love and trust and care for everybody. I had, through me, in my veins, uh, the, the spirit of people who had dealt with the humiliation of segregation and yet chose to find ways to love and build a community for everyone. And I realized that that wasn't something I needed to be silent about. That was something I needed to affirm and to give voice to. And I think that's what happens when you begin to understand who you are and, and the history you've lived through. You're talking a lot about shame here. And it seems to me that our politics at the moment and the rise of, of this president in particular is built on a rejection of the idea that we should feel shame. It's built on a desire to not feel that shame, to in fact say that what has been given back is now more than enough. And the class that should be considered aggrieved, should be considered disrespected, should be considered in need of sympathy and empathy and understanding has actually changed to rural whites, say. And the the project you're you're in here feels to me, and I, and I don't mean this in I think the way this term is often used, un-American, but un-American in the sense that America, I think, has been a society that is particularly resistant to shame, that believes there's a value in forgetting things very quickly, and moving on from things very fast. And I'm curious how you. At first, I'm curious whether you agree with that, whether you see. The project of trying to rehabilitate the idea of shame and its proper role in American life as something that is counter to our history and perhaps counter to our culture. Well, I mean, it's a it, it's a complicated question, but I I think it's an important question. I actually 
I agree that we don't have a political culture that actually rewards and affirms those who recognize that they've made a mistake. We actually have a political culture where uh, most of our politicians think that if they stand up and say, I made a mistake and I'm sorry, that makes them look weak. And we haven't done a very good job in creating a space where we uh, actually regard those politicians who stand up and say, I was wrong, I made a mistake, as strong. But I think we need to get there. I do think it's a disconnect because in our personal lives, in our familial lives, I think we understand the importance of remorse and regret very well. As I mentioned in the criminal justice context, we insist on it. We insist on offenders expressing their shame before we trust them again. You know, and I think in our personal relationships with one another, I mean, this is not complicated for me. It's, you know, if you're in a relationship with someone and you want that relationship to be strong and you want that relationship to evolve, both people can't be right all the time. You're going to have to learn how to deal with those mistakes that inevitably happen. And in fact, if you show me two people who've been in love for 50 years, I'll show you two people who've learned how to apologize to one another when they hurt each other, when they fall down. And that's a stronger union. And I actually believe that if we can get this part of our psyche, this part of our country to evolve, and I, and I, and I think about it as just a part of us that um, has not evolved very much. We do a lot of things great in America. We do, you know, we do pride great. We do the Olympics great. We do sports great. We've got a great songbook for our triumphs and our achievements, but we're lacking when it comes to confronting our failures and our mistakes. And I just think we have to cultivate that part of who we are. And I, I want to do it not because I think it's important. I don't have an interest in humiliating people. And in fact, one of the reasons why I think we struggle so much with this notion of acknowledging our mistakes, confronting our failures, is that we've created such a punitive society. We're so punitive in America that I think most people think that if they say I'm wrong or I made a mistake, that they're going to be punished for that. And part of the reason why uh, we're doing what we're doing in, in building a memorial to victims of lynching and a museum about enslavement and, and, and segregation as an organization that has defended people who've been accused of very bad crimes is because I want to make it clear to everybody, I have no interest in punishing America for its history. I don't want to punish this country for these decades of abuses. I want to liberate us. I actually believe in redemption. I believe in recovery. I believe in rehabilitation. That's why I advocate for people on death row and children who have committed violent crimes and people who have broken the law. And I believe in it for our country too. But we cannot get to the reconciliation without the truth. We cannot get there if we don't acknowledge what it is that we are struggling to recover from. And I think our political culture will get stronger. It will get more vibrant if we can begin to recognize that the politician who says, you know, we were wrong about that. We made a mistake when we did that. I was wrong about that. I'm sorry. I want to be honest with you. I want you to trust me. And that means sometimes I'm going to tell you I did something that I shouldn't have done. If we create a political culture where we actually reward leadership like that, I think we get healthier. Because the opposite of that is what we've seen too often uh, in our country. And it's what I call the politics of fear and anger. 
And for me, if you allow yourself to be governed by fear and anger, you will tolerate inequality. You'll tolerate abuse. You tolerate injustice. You go any place in the world where, where there's oppression. And if you ask the oppressors, why do you treat people like that? Why do you do that? They'll give you a narrative of fear and anger. And we have to be on guard to resist that. It's tempting. It's very seductive. But it does not lead to good governance. It does not lead to just and fair treatment. It doesn't even lead where people think it's going to lead. But but can I push on one piece of this, which is I think, consciously or not, a lot of people think it will lead to the retention of power, the retention of resources, the retention of influence. That you you made a point earlier in our conversation that, that I thought was very profound, where you said it doesn't take much for us to create distrust. And I've been reflecting on that since you said it because it, it does seem to me that if you take your diagnosis, and to a large extent I do, that this is a country that recognizes it stands on the precipice of quite a lot of shame and quite a lot of work. And you look at people peering at that and then you look at our politics recently. I think folks look at that and they say – I am afraid of what it looks like for me, for my class, once that is done. I am afraid that there are privileges I have had and do have. And for many of these people, privileges you know, that exist amidst many disadvantages, right? That they don't feel like they have much to give up. That yes, their, their class, their race took a lot, but it's not like they're doing so well now. So there's nothing, there's nothing they feel that they have to give. They live in communities racked by opioids and that are jobless and 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 are, are in intense distress themselves, and that the fear of that shame and the fear of what absolving it would mean is very powerful. And you you speak of a stronger union, but I do wonder to to go a little bit back to our earlier conversation about you know what that the the contested meanings of some of these words. Some of these folks might look at that stronger union and say that is a union in which I am not stronger. But yeah, I, 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 I understand the appeal of that analysis. But when I look at history, it, it, it is sort of the politics of fear and anger that have kept those communities less powerful. You know, uh, you know only one in four uh, Southerners owned enslaved people. Seventy-five percent, the masses, benefited from slavery, but they weren't the property owners. They weren't the slave owners that were actually going to be immediately impacted by emancipation. And yet, those were the men and women who died on those battlefields. Those were the people who had to bear the weight and burden of that. And we were able to achieve that by persuading people that something worse than slavery would emerge if uh, black people were freed, which was a new class to lord over them and this kind of fear of racial equality and this anger about racial equality was the drug that we use to keep people intoxicated with that problem, even at their own economic demise and expense. And that's been true throughout the 20th century. We had a massive movement in this country to build workers' rights and to empower people uh, and to create forces that could better protect workers. And that was ultimately 
undermined and it continues to be undermined by this politics of fear and anger. Well, let's distract people with the race problem here or the immigration problem there and all of that. And that's not to say that there aren't real problems. But this use of the politics of fear and anger isn't really being used to take away people's power. <laughs> it, it, it's really being used to sustain their powerlessness. And that's why it is so destructive, but it's also why it is so effective. It's why everybody wants to do it. And what I'm saying is that actually if you don't give in to that, if you actually are sober about what is required, something better waits for you. My state of Alabama resisted integration uh, as much as anybody in America. We resisted. We still do in a lot of ways. And our state constitution still prohibits uh, black and white kids from going to school together. It's in the constitution now, 2017. And it was only in 2004 that the business community began to see how that language was undermining their efforts at recruiting European businesses and others to invest in Alabama. And so they persuaded the legislature to put on the ballot in 2004 a referendum that would pull out that language. We can only change the state constitution through a statewide referendum. And it was put on the ballot, but with our history of silence, nobody knew how to talk about it, so no one did. And so what happened in 2004 is that the majority of people in Alabama voted to keep that language in the state constitution. It was put back on the ballot in 2012, and a higher percentage of people voted to keep that language in the state constitution. Now, the one thing that we are super proud of in the state of Alabama, the one thing that people are really excited by, that they absolutely get objective benefit from, is the success of our college football teams. Alabama and Auburn are some of the most successful college football programs in America. And people will go to those stadiums and they will cheer and the state will go into crisis when one of those teams loses. And we are so excited and benefit so much from the success of those programs. And neither one of those programs would be successful if we actually implemented the state constitution that we keep voting to ratify. There is a disconnect. It does not make sense to vote against integration in public schools in 2012 and then go to Bryant Stadium and follow the Alabama football team, which is majority black. And that disconnect is part of what I think is at the heart of this issue. It is about the narrative. It is about the cultural habits we have formed where we think we can hold on to segregation and then cheer our largely black football team at the same time and nobody's the worse for it. But there are people the worse for it. We're all the worse for it. And I actually think for people living in the Rust Belt, people dealing with the opioid addiction, people who are dealing with what happens when you lose your hope, which is what's happening in so many parts of our country, because we have avoided doing the hard political work that we need to do to create opportunity and, and develop in some of these spaces, uh, it, it, it's not new. It's, it's something we've been dealing with for a very long time. And that's why I think actually uh, if we insist on something more honest, if we insist on – and we start talking about the politics of redemption and recovery and rehabilitation, I think we can get someplace very different than we've gotten. This conversation about shame leads into something else that you speak quite a bit about that, that when I first read you not, – not heard you but read you frame it this way, it, it took my breath away a little bit, which is you say – the question with the death penalty is not, do they deserve to die, but do we deserve to kill? And you you talk about, and I heard this in an interview, you, you spoke about speaking in Germany and the way they reacted to the idea 
that the state could be trusted to kill. And I'd like you to draw that out a bit because it's lodged quite deep in my memory at this point. But it it, it felt to me very powerful and, and, and a very different way of looking at this issue. Yeah, I, I do think that we tend to think that punishment only expresses something for the person who's experiencing it. I, I really do think it, it expresses more about the people who impose it. And in that respect, uh, I, I do think the threshold question of the death penalty isn't do people deserve to die for the crimes they've committed. The threshold question is do we deserve to kill? And we have a system that's incredibly unreliable. For every nine people who have been executed in this country, we've now identified one innocent person on death row. We've had 158 people released from death row after being proved innocent. It's a shocking rate of error, over 1,400 executions and 158 exonerations. If this was any other area of life, we would shut it down. If for every nine apples you picked up, one had poison that would kill you on the first bite, no one would be eating apples. But we tolerate this because, again, of this disconnect. And I do think it does reflect our our lack of consciousness and, and accountability on these issues. And when I was in Germany, I gave a lecture about the problems of the American death penalty. And when I finished, I was surprised by the scholar who stood up and said, well, of course, we could never have the death penalty. We could never execute people again in Germany. And I thought this was going to be a controversial statement. But it was clear that everybody from the German delegation uh, accepted that, believed that. And, and this woman said, with our history, it would be unconscionable for us uh, to ever amass systems uh, that could execute people. And I did think about that a lot when I when I flew home and I and I started thinking about what it would feel like to be living today if the German nation started building gas chambers and then what it what it would feel like if they started putting people in those gas chambers and executing them. And then when I started thinking about the fact that if they were doing that and the majority of people they were executing were Jewish, I realized I could not be silent in that world. Even living in America, I could not be at peace. I could not be inactive and confronting that spectacle. I would have to do something. And when I got to Alabama and I started thinking about the thousands of bodies buried in the ground who were the victims of, of, of lynching and, and terror and, and enslavement and uh, racial violence, it's very hard to go back to death row. Uh, knowing that 84% of the people who have been executed in that state are African-American and see people comfortably advancing this system. And I do think that we haven't thought about the power waiting for us <laughs> if we express our desire to be free from this history. I, I, I think there's, uh, every, there's a, every Southern governor uh, today has a great opportunity to transform this country in some simple ways that would stand out. I, you know, I've argued that if a southern governor or any governor in a state with a history of, of lynching, of racial terror lynching, said, you know, I'm going to end the death penalty in my state, not because we've got innocent people on death row, not because it's unreliable, not because of cost, not because it's just always morally inappropriate. But if a governor said, I'm going to end the death penalty in my state because we have a horrific history of lynching hundreds of people in racial violence, we tolerated this terrorism and this abuse of people of color. And in response to that history, 
because there is this line connecting lynching and the death penalty, I'm just going to say we're not going to do that because we're going to be a new place, a different place. We're going to confront this history. And I, I believe that that governor would become the most famous governor in American history. His name or her name would be known all throughout the world and they would create an identity that offers something really powerful for this nation to embrace. And it wouldn't cost any money. It wouldn't even require a whole lot of policy work and whatnot. It'd just be a way of expressing something redemptive that I believe our nation is desperate to hear. People need to hear. You know, we talk about this uh, in the political context, in the personal context. I, I actually think there's there's something about us in this country that we actually love it when people get back up after they've fallen down. We love it when people renew themselves and and transform themselves into something that is healthier and better and and more committed to doing the things that need to be done. I think we actually recognize uh, what's wrong and what's shameful, what's abusive. You can't actually look at what happened to enslaved people and understand it and not feel shame about it. You can't know what happened at these lynching sites and not feel shame about it. You look at people standing in front of churches holding up signs saying segregation or war. You can't really see that and not know that there is something fundamentally wrong about that. And so to be silent about what you know to be wrong, I think is it, it kind of gets at you. It creates a kind of illness. And I want us to be healthy. And we're not going to be healthy until we confront that silence. I, you know, have been involved in politics for, for a while now. And, I, you know, people talk about the death penalty. And the discussion is typically framed in my experience as, you know, well, is it reliable enough? And is it more or less cruel than lifetime incarceration? And, you know, what error rate would be the error rate, if any, that would be acceptable to have? And it, it, it seems there is something very different about asking whether a society that in your lifetime was segregated would not let you walk through the front door for a polio vaccine, would not let you go to the beach whether that society has the moral authority, has the character to wield that power, particularly wield it disproportionately against the people whom it, it clearly is a very recent history of discrimination against, it, it felt to me like a tremendous act of my own blindness that that hadn't looked that way to me before. Well, well, well particularly when you map, you know, it's the spaces where segregation was most entrenched where we have the highest numbers of executions. You know, it's only in the American South that we've had the high rate of executions. And, and while this is a problem nationwide and there was no part of America that was spared this, it's hard to, it's hard to not see the death penalty as the, as the stepchild of lynching and this kind of violence. And our indifference, you know, as a lawyer, and, and just one example of that, as a lawyer, I, you know, I worked on this case uh, that went to the U.S. Supreme Court in the 1980s called McCleskey versus Kemp. It was uh, brought by the Legal Defense Fund, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and it was in some ways the third case in this trilogy of cases that dealt with race and the death penalty. In Furman, the court struck down the death penalty in part because they recognized that it was applied in such a racially discriminatory manner. Eighty-seven percent of the people who had been executed for the crime of rape uh, were black men convicted of raping white women. A hundred percent of the people executed for that offense had been executed for offenses involving uh, victims who were white when women of color were three times more likely to be the victims of sexual assault. There was tremendous pushback against Furman when the Supreme Court struck it down, led by the states of the Old South. 
And so the court allowed it to be revived in 1976. And they said, well, we're not going to presume that the modern death penalty operates in the same racially biased manner as the old death penalty. And they put the challenge uh, to the Legal Defense Fund to prove that the new death penalty was operating in a discriminatory manner. And the Legal Defense Fund accepted that challenge and a researcher named David Baldus at the University of Iowa did a very sophisticated study of Georgia's death penalty and came up with some powerful data which established that you're 11 times more likely to get the death penalty if the victim is white than if the victim is black, 22 times more likely to get the death penalty if the defendant is black and the victim is white. And the state of Georgia could not reject these findings even under their study race of victim was the greatest predictor of who got the death penalty. And when that case got to the United States Supreme Court, the court said, we accept your data. We accept this evidence of bias and discrimination. But we nonetheless hold that Georgia's death penalty is unconstitutional. And the first thing they said was, if we deal with this problem of racial bias in the administration of the death penalty, it's going to be just a matter of time before lawyers start complaining about similar racial disparities for other kinds of criminal offenses. They'll point out these disparities for drug crimes and property crimes. And Justice Brennan in his dissent ridiculed the court's analysis as, quote, a fear of too much justice. And he was right. The court was saying uh, we'd rather allow this bias and discrimination to persist in the death penalty context than to have to confront it in all aspects of our criminal justice system. But it was the second thing the court said that literally – it just, it just made my heart ache. I was reading the opinion when I got to the part where the court said a certain quantum of bias, a certain quantum of discrimination is in our judgment inevitable. And they used the word inevitable to characterize these results. And as a lawyer who has practiced before the United States Supreme Court, it still hurts me to know that there is a Supreme Court decision that talks about the inevitability of racial bias and discrimination in the administration of the death penalty. You cannot reconcile that with the words equal justice under law. Uh, the court could have said that in the 1950s in dealing with Brown versus Board of Education. They could have said, no, that's inevitable. They were going to have schools that are different and racially segregated. But they didn't say that. They said it's unconstitutional and its unconstitutionality made it not inevitable. And because of that ruling, I am talking to you here today. And without that ruling, I'm not sure I would be. And so for me, that willingness to accept is very much a manifestation of not appreciating the history that creates it. And I just don't think that if the court had seen what I'd seen, if they thought about the kinds of things I've thought of, if they knew what I know about this line from enslavement to terrorism and segregation to our current criminal justice system, uh, that they could be so comfortable talking about the inevitability of this bias and discrimination, particularly when they have the authority to disrupt it. To step outside the boundaries of the conversation we're in, if you were to reimagine our justice system to be more just, if we were not bound by the, the prisons we've already built and the precedents we already have and public opinion and the desire for punishment, what do you think a just justice system would look like? What would its principles be? How would it how would it differ from what we have? Well, I think it's appropriate to make public safety a priority. And I don't have any quibbles with that. I'm not someone who says, oh, we shouldn't worry about whether this public is safer or not safer with this policy or that policy. So I believe in public safety. I, I just think that we have a lot of people in jails and prisons who are not a threat to public safety. 
And we should not put people in jails or in prisons if they're not a threat to public safety. If someone writes a bad check or if they're in possession of marijuana, if they have a drug addiction or drug dependency problem, rather than using the criminal justice system to respond to that, I think we should use the health system. Other countries have done that and they've had great success. If you look at Portugal and their experience with drug addiction and dependency and you compare it to America, I don't think anybody would say, oh, I want the American outcome rather than the Portugal uh, outcome. Do you want to speak quickly for the, for those who don't know to what that outcome is? Sure. Uh, you know, the drug epidemic that intensified in the 70s and 80s was a global epidemic. You saw the increase of addiction and dependency really throughout Europe, throughout the Americas. Uh, we decided to declare a war on drugs. We criminalized those people who had drug addiction and drug dependency issues. Uh, in Portugal and other countries, they said, no, that's a health problem. Let's use the apparatus of our healthcare system. And so they look for ways to treat addiction. They look for ways to provide interventions that help people who were using drugs and having their lives disrupted by that uh, get the help they needed. And uh, what they were able to do is to reduce addiction and dependency dramatically over that time period without ever putting people in jails and prisons without having this blossom of uh, this, this, you know, this incredible money drain going into jails and prisons. And their disruption in all aspects of life uh, from the drug trade, from drug addiction, uh, was negligible compared to America, where we have gone from spending $6 billion on jails and prisons in 1980 to $80 billion last year. So we're now taking money from education. We're taking money from health and human services. We're taking money from critical services so we can invest in jails and prisons largely to house hundreds of thousands of people who are there for drug addiction and, and drug dependency issues. And for me, a just system would simply say we don't want people in jails and prisons who are not a threat to public safety. It would be organized around rehabilitation and correction. You see that in Scandinavia uh, where their philosophy is, is that if you've committed a crime, we're going to figure out why and we're going to do the things we need to do to be sure that you're not going to commit a crime again. It's all about rehabilitation, all about recovery, all about restoration. I actually think a healthy just justice system would be seriously trying to grapple with the question, how do we eliminate crime? That's not even a question we ask in America. How do you eliminate crime? How do you keep people from committing crimes? If we were serious about that question, we'd have a wildly different conversation than the conversation we, we're having. We, we'd have to start talking about the trauma epidemic. You know, you know people complain about violence in Chicago and and, and our big urban centers, but they don't talk about the epidemic of trauma that we have in these communities. We've got thousands of children in this country who are born into violent families. They live in violent neighborhoods. They go to violent schools. By the time they're five, their lives have been shaped by violence and people pushing one another and shooting one another, and they have trauma disorders. They're just like our soldiers coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq. They come back with these these this, this disruption to their brain. And if you know about trauma, you, you understand that if somebody comes into a space and threatens you, your brain's going to start producing chemicals like cortisol and adrenaline to help you cope with that threat. And what happens to our soldiers is that when they're constantly being threatened, their brain gets tricked into producing those chemicals all the time. And even when they're not in a situation where they're being threatened and menaced, they still have coursing through their bodies this 
this hyper-responsiveness triggered by these chemicals, and they overreact. They don't behave well. They can't perform well. They have a post-traumatic stress disorder. And we treat that by making them feel safe. And if we can get them to feel safe long enough, the brain starts to relax and they can lead normal and healthy lives. Well, we've got thousands of children, tens of thousands of children in this country that are starting school at age four and five with a trauma disorder. They've got cortisol and adrenaline coursing through their brains because they're constantly being threatened and menaced. And instead of making those children feel safe, what we do is we threaten them some more. We, we make them go through metal detectors. We talk to them as if they're destined to be criminals. And we've got schools where the teachers sound like correctional officers and the principals sound like wardens. And we keep using threat and intimidation in hopes that they'll respond. And of course, they do the opposite. And when you're an eight-year-old coping with trauma and threat and menace all the time and there's no place for you to go and somebody gives you a drug and for the first time in your life, you have three hours where you don't feel threatened and menaced, what do you want after that? You want more drugs. Or if at age 11, somebody says, join our gang and we'll help you fight the battle that, that we're all in, where we're constantly being threatened and menaced, you join that gang. And instead of trying to disrupt that, understand that, we think if we threaten more punishment, we can end that. And it's, in my view, a very misguided way to think about justice. And so I want to start asking, how do we keep people from committing crimes? How do we eliminate trauma? I think it means doing some things very, very differently. I think, you know, we have to have trauma-informed interventions in these zip codes. There are zip codes in America where we know that 80 percent of the children are going to end up in jails or prisons. And I don't understand why that's not a crisis. When the Bureau of Justice in 2002 predicted that one in three black male babies born in this country is expected to go to jail or prison, I don't know why that wasn't a topic for every presidential candidate, every political officer. Why wasn't that a crisis? And again, our indifference to that phenomenon has meant that we keep locking people up. We keep building more jails and prisons. We keep spending more money toward a solution that will never, ever work. And I think a just system would say, how do we eliminate crime? How do we actually uh, deal with this trauma epidemic? How do we get uh, communities uh, to, to, to reposition themselves in a way where we don't have to have uh, the kind of gang violence and drug violence and uh, there are interventions and treatments. And I just – I don't think it's uh, disconnected. I don't think it's uh, naive. I actually just think it's a question of how we want to look at this issue. We didn't have to wage a war on drugs and I think even now all kinds of people are realizing the folly of that, the wasted money behind that. We could just make better choices but we won't make them if we're distracted by law and order rhetoric that sounds tough and good but doesn't actually achieve better public safety or better justice. One of the things that, that you brought up there a couple of times is the idea of trauma in communities. And and it's something that is laced through your work in an interesting way. The That we often think about a miscarriage of justice is about that person, that poor person on death row, right? That they, their life has been ruined. But you, you talk a lot in your book, Just Mercy, about what it does to the broader community, what it does to, to feel that way, the, the, the degree to which it is an injury to all, a feeling of powerlessness to all, a feeling of, of fear to all. And that struck me as, a, as, an, as an interesting perspective and, and one we probably don't discuss enough. I think people see these acts of discrimination or these failures as an aggression towards the individual who has been failed. But what is the cumulative cost of this on the communities that are disproportionately affected by it? 
Well, I, I think it is quite significant. I mean, one of the hardest things I do is I sit down with, you know, 12 and 13-year-old boys who tell me that they don't expect to be free by the time they're 21. They actually have an expectation of arrest and incarceration. And they're not making it up because of something they've seen on TV or something they've heard. That's what they see happening in their communities. Their brothers and their cousins and their neighbors are being swallowed up by this uh, by this beast, uh, which is our criminal justice system. And they don't see many people escaping it or avoiding it. And so a lot of them say, well, I better go out here and get mine while I can. And it's not an irrational choice faced with these kinds of systems, these kinds of institutions. And these are kids. These are young people who – some of whom have done nothing yet, but they are being pushed into this world. And so I think the community effects are are dramatic. Uh, and I think that's always been true. You know, our work on lynching, it's been important for me to emphasize that the victims of lynching were not just the thousands of people who were murdered and killed. It was the millions of African Americans who were terrorized. You know, six million people fled the American South. And uh, they left these communities because of terror. And in fact, older people come up to me sometimes and they say, Mrs. Stevenson, I get angry when I hear somebody on TV talking about how we're dealing with domestic terrorism for the first time in our nation's history after 9-11. They said, we grew up with terror. We had, we had to worry about being bombed and lynched and menaced every day of our lives. And we have in America a demographic geography that was largely shaped by terrorism. The black people in Cleveland, in Chicago, in Detroit, in Los Angeles, in Oakland did not go to those communities as immigrants looking for new economic opportunities. They went to those communities as refugees and exiles from terror in the American South. There's a line from Gary, Indiana to Mississippi, from Chicago to Mississippi, from Louisiana to Los Angeles, from Alabama to Cleveland. And these lines are in many ways forged with the tears and the suffering of people who were forced to leave. And it has an impact. And we know in the international context when we're dealing with a refugee community, we're supposed to treat them. We're supposed to help them recover from the trauma and the stress that they have endured. They're not like other immigrants. They're not like other people who leave one space to another. They have a challenge. And we didn't deal with that in America. We didn't treat our internally forcibly removed people from these spaces as refugees who had needs. We just put them in sections of our urban centers where we ignored a lot of their needs. We put them in ghettos. And that legacy continued, that suffering continued. And and I do think there are community effects. And now there are lots of spaces in America where people are not persuaded that education will make a difference for them. They're not persuaded that they can make it. And when people get hopeless about what they can be and do in a society, you're going to see more crime. You're going to see more violence. You're going to see more despair. You're going to see more destructive behavior. And that's why restoring hope in these communities is the most important thing a just system could do. You know, I think our sentencing is often hopeless. We throw people away at the slightest provocation. We've got 13 states with no minimum age for trying a child as an adult. Now, what does that say about how we think about children? No minimum age. I've represented 9 and 10-year-old kids who have been facing 50 and 60-year prison sentences. I've represented kids 13 years old sentenced to life imprisonment without parole. And that hopelessness 
which is reinforced by the death penalty and life without parole for nonviolent offenders and people with possession of drugs, is in many ways having a devastating impact in spaces where there's a lot that you see daily that can take away your hope. And for me, I've come to believe that hopelessness is the enemy of justice. Uh, to, to get to justice, you've got to have some hope about what you can achieve. Injustice prevails where hopelessness persists. Because hope is the only thing that will get you to stand up when other people say sit down. It's the only thing that will get you to speak when other people say be quiet. And to achieve reform and I think a, a vision of who we can and should be, we're going to have to find our hope. And And I think one of the biggest problems in our justice system, if I were to remaking it, I would remake it around this notion uh, that we've got to be hopeful in everything we do. We've got to see something possible in each person that we interact with. We've got to stop putting people in jails and prisons who aren't a threat to public safety. And we've got to express this vision that we want to redeem, restore, rehabilitate, uh, help correct the behaviors that have disrupted our public life, that have created threats for people so that we can eliminate those threats. Uh, I really do think we should be talking about how do we prevent crime from happening? How do we keep people from committing crimes uh, for them and for us? So eight years and 90-some days ago, I believe, we inaugurated the first African-American president. And 90-some days ago, we inaugurated Donald Trump, a president who I think it's fair to say at least represented some kind of backlash to, to President Obama. I'm curious what story you feel we are living through right now. Is it a story of retrenchment? Is it a story of hope? Is it a story of false backlash? Is it a story of dash dreams? How do you tell the story of where America is in this long narrative? Right now, well, I I think I, I think we haven't made the progress we need to make on a lot of critical issues. I, I we're so quick to declare victory <laughs> before the game is over. I think that's one of our biggest challenges in this country. You know, we say, "Oh, Emancipation Proclamation, that's wonderful," without paying attention to the fact that it actually didn't emancipate enslaved people. Uh, in a lot of the border states that weren't fighting against the North. We talk about the 13th Amendment and we celebrate it and the 14th Amendment. We celebrate the 15th Amendment. We celebrate it. But the, then the United States Supreme Court makes it completely ineffective by advancing and upholding states' rights. And we keep doing these things. We pass the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, but then we don't care if states actually implement those acts in a way that changes fundamentally uh, the political culture. We elect Barack Obama and we declare that we're in a post-racial society. And then lo and behold, eight years later, it's pretty obvious that wherever we are, we're not in a post-racial society because we have candidates actually invoking race and religion and using the identities of Mexicans and Muslims to gain political power organized around our distrust, our fear, and our animosity toward those groups. And so I don't think it reflects much beyond our failure to deal with these underlying problems. I, I think if we uh, – when we take on this challenge of, of addressing our history, we'll get to the point where we just won't feel comfortable with any candidate that wants to use stereotyping and, and, and racial narratives uh, to gain power. That's my hope. Uh, and we really haven't really done that, in my judgment, in America in a fundamental way. I also think that we're learning 
narrative matters. I, I, I just – I think if we're inattentive to what people are hearing and, and feeling and experiencing, if we're not responsive, uh, then we're going to see these consequences. Um, even during the Obama years, we saw police shootings that were incredibly painful in communities of color. Uh, that was a problem that could not be solved by the election of an African-American alone. That problem didn't go away in November of 2016. That problem is still here. And so I'm interested in staying focused on how do we address these big structural problems? How do we deal with uh, reducing the prison population by half so we have $30, $40 billion to reinvest in development in communities and education and opportunities? Uh, how do we begin a conversation that, that makes us healthier when it comes to issues of, of race and inclusion? Uh, because I think until we do some of that, our immigration debate is always going to be compromised by kind of bigotry that we're not even conscious of. You know, how do we think differently about our children and creating futures for our children, all of our children? We're so preoccupied with how well we treat our, our privileged children and our gifted children that we neglect how we are dealing with our, our impoverished children, our children with trauma and despair. And I don't think you can judge your commitment to children by looking at how you treat the gifted and the privileged ones. I think you've got to look at how you treat the poor ones and the ones that are dealing with abuse and neglect and, and trauma. And so these kinds of questions for me are questions that have been on the table for a very long time and we haven't really answered them as effectively as we need to. And that's true today. It was true five years ago. It was true 10 years ago. I think we've made progress in some areas and we should look at the progress we've made and learn from it. I've been thinking about this a lot. You know, 50 years ago, we didn't really deal with domestic violence in a responsible way. Uh, we actually blamed women for being in relationships where they would sometimes be the victim of abuse and violence. We just thought, well, if you make that choice, it's on you. And police officers would go to homes when there were calls and complaints about domestic violence. And, you know, they would tell jokes with the guy. They would try to get him calm and then they would leave. And this very unevolved appreciation for the suffering that that creates and sustains uh, just wasn't there. In fact, I remember popular TV show, The Honeymooners, you know, the, the punchline with Jackie Gleason would say, to the moon, Alice, to the moon. And it was this threat of violence that we didn't really feel all that provoked by. And then we started working on that narrative. And I remember Farrah Fawcett made this movie, The Burning Bed, and we started trying to dramatize the plight of people who were suffering in their homes uh, from people who were abusive and, and, and violent. And that narrative began to change, and it's continued to change. And today, even professional athletes who are highly visible and successful uh, are at risk of losing that success, having those careers disrupted, if they engage in this kind of violence. And it, it reflects a change. And I think we're getting to the point, we're not there yet, where we're going to have a much healthier understanding of what it takes to confront and overcome domestic violence. And so we can do it. I think we can do it. But it doesn't happen just because of the passage of time. And I think if we believed that uh, 100 and some years after this or 50 years after that, we don't have to worry about these things again, then we're being naive. What history tells us is that it will repeat itself until we appreciate what that history represents. Something that is interesting in, in, in your remarks here, I had Tanasi Coates on the show a, a little while back, and it was shortly after Donald Trump had won the election. And he had just written this big piece based on a, a series of interviews with President Obama, where he argued essentially that 
it was necessary for Obama's victory and for that advance of, in that case, African-American political power, for Obama to have built himself and, and, and authentically had a much more optimistic narrative and a much less shame-based idea of what was needed than what we're talking about here. And, and I wonder if you think there's any tension between some of the political outcomes you want to see, some of the, the changes in society you want to see, whether it, there isn't an argument that an approach of forgetting, an approach based on a, a cheap optimism doesn't get you there faster than confrontation with our demons. And I'm not arguing that one would be better than the other. I'm, right. I'm more saying that this is something that people do seem to believe, that there might be, even if it's not right, a utility in a easier approach for this for, for folks to swallow. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I mean, our political system is majoritarian. And whenever your power is rooted in the majority of people supporting you, you're going to be compromised. You're going to be constrained by, you know, the dominant norms and values that are playing out in that culture or that community. Um, but it it matters whether you are open to doing what's right, doing what's just, to leadership, even if your power is rooted in uh, majoritarianism. You know, the abolitionists that pushed and forced this nation to get honest about slavery were largely unelected, but their impact on elected leadership was powerful. You know, uh, Abe Lincoln didn't go to the White House committed to ending slavery. That wasn't his priority. Uh, it's something that he ultimately helped achieve. Uh, but it was the leadership. It was the perspective of, of teachers and preachers and advocates and people all over this country that made that outcome possible. And so I don't want to confuse elected political leaders with the kind of leadership we need uh, to advance our country. Uh, Dr. King uh, couldn't have been elected governor of any state in the American South ever, uh, even after the Nobel Peace Prize, certainly not in 65 and certainly not after his activism against the Vietnam War, doesn't mean that his influence wasn't great and profound and significant in the 20th century. And so I think we have to understand these roles. I think because of his activism and the activism of, of so many others during the civil rights movement, they moved John Kennedy in a direction that began to use the Justice Department, insist that the Justice Department become a weapon in protecting those civil rights workers, those who were pushing for fairness and justice. Uh, Dr. King and the civil rights community moved Lyndon B. Johnson to say we shall overcome. And that influence and that relationship, as complicated as it was, was necessary. Now, it took a Johnson and it took a Kennedy to see what was happening in the American South and be responsive. Uh, and so it does matter who we elect. I think it matters enormously. But I don't think we should ever expect uh, the president of the United States or any single elected official uh, to do the hard work of uh, improving our culture, changing our culture, confronting our history, achieving the kind of justice that, that, that many of us seek. It's a relationship, uh, and it's a relationship that's critical. And I think, if anything, we may have expected too much from 
the election of an African-American in the White House. It, it, and I don't even think that's about President Obama. I think it's about just the way our society works. Uh, it's an important moment in American history. It will remain an important moment in American history. Uh, it's a significant achievement. Uh, I just think it doesn't it doesn't eliminate the greater need that we have to deal with the problems in this country that have been festering for a very long time. Do you see any leaders like that out there now? Are there people you would point to? Outside of elected office? Yeah, uh, yeah I think that, um, you know, there's a rich conversation happening in faith spaces that I hope will uh, continue to happen. Uh, I think we've got to begin to push uh, the faith community uh, to reflect on its historic silence in moments of crisis. You know, too many churches were silent uh, during the era of lynching and during the era of segregation and feel exposed as a result of that silence. And we're in the midst of some real challenges now. And the question is, will they stay silent? And, um, you know, Reverend Barber in North Carolina, somebody I really admire, is pushing the church to understand that um, it's their obligation uh, to be active and to be heard. And there are leaders like him in in other faith traditions that I I hope will continue to raise their voices. Um, There are people in business who are recognizing that it's important that we acknowledge our obligation to be vocal around certain issues, uh, to kind of give voice to this. You know, Starbucks, Howard Schultz at Starbucks, you know, has been dealing with these issues. They 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 took on raising awareness about veterans, uh, wounded veterans. They've done some things around climate change. And then they, you know, tried to do something about race in, in, in 2014, 2015, and, and were really criticized for it. But they continue to try to find ways to talk about those issues. I actually think that's great. You know, they've got this program of hiring uh, formerly incarcerated people and prioritizing opportunities for that population that I think is really important. And there are other people in that space who are looking to do the same thing. And I think that kind of leadership, that kind of modeling can really can really make a difference. Uh, there are people who are who are really serious about changing uh, education and making it accessible to everyone breaking down some of these barriers that have long uh, isolated communities from the opportunities that they need to succeed. And I, I, you know, and I'm, I'm really excited when I see that. I think there's a, there's an increase in the activism of artists and entertainers who are giving their voice to a lot of these concerns. I was just at an event uh, last night where Common was being recognized for some of his activism. And there are other people like that, that I, I'm encouraged to see them, um, giving voice to issues and pushing on these issues. I'm working now with these amazing sculptors who are doing such powerful work, you know, people like Hank Willis-Thomas and Sanford Biggers and Titus Kafors and some of these others that, that, that are using their talents to express important truths, all these very gifted writers that are, I think, are presenting uh, ideas that are important for an age like ours, I, th- I think will we'll have a huge impact. And... Uh, you know, ta Coates and Colson Whitehead and, and so many others have just written some amazing things that I think are important to our thinking and our way of understanding how to, how to address these issues. So I, I know uh, I've taken up a lot of your time here. I'll ask you the question we, we always use to end the show, which is, what are three books that have influenced you, that, that, that you care about, that you would recommend people read? 
Wow. Um, the Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky. I read that book in college and have reread it multiple times because it's um, it's just so rich with the power of compassion and what it can do. I really loved uh, Marilyn Robinson's Gilead. It's probably one of the best books I've read this century uh, because it was also rich uh, with an understanding of what compassion can do. And I think my third book choice would be Tolstoy. And it's not War and Peace. It would actually be Anna Karenina because I, I think the power of love is something that we don't talk a lot about in public life, uh, but I think we should. And it's a book that really illuminates how powerful love can be in, in creating a way of seeing the world and thinking about the world. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think we'll be worse off if we start talking about what it means to be a community, a society, a country uh, that tries to show love uh, whenever we can. And uh, these books for me are books that uh, illustrate that dynamic really powerfully. Brian Stevenson, um, the work you do is remarkable. It's been a, a genuine pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Brian Stevenson for taking the time. I, I think I'm going to be thinking about this interview for, for, for quite a while. Uh, thank you to all of you for tuning in. Thank you to my producer, Bert Pinkerton, uh, and AC Valdez on this episode. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox podcast, and we'll be back next week.